Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one, look. Talk to me, look. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're male Carl Williams fans. Look, I'll be tail with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount. Especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. In 1978, in the small town of Gerildery in country New South Wales, Mick Lewis and his wife Sue were found dead, with their two small children left to starve in their isolated homestead. Was this another tragic case of domestic violence taken to its deadly conclusion, or was there an even more sinister force at play here? After weeks of painstaking and meticulous detective work, a bevy of red herrings, some funky 1970s forensic work, and a massive search for a rare rifle, the stranger and bolder-than-fiction truth eventually revealed itself. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our 10 points for effort first season and ad-free versions of all of our regular episodes. Yeah, those 10 points were out of 100. (laughs) (laughs) As well as exclusive patron-only monthly episodes where we talk even more about murder. Murder, murder, murder. It's all murder all the time, 24-7 around here. (laughs) True that. Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Drilderie is a small town in the southern Riverina region of New South Wales, Australia. 
a short drive north of the Victorian state border. It's a blink-and-you'd-miss-it kind of town. At the 2016 census, Drilderie had a population of 1,029. In 1978, it was half that. Famous for its merino sheep, it also has the dubious honour of being where epic ye oldie beardo Ned Kelly and his hairy gang robbed the Drilderie Bank, scampering away with a princely sum of £2,140. Even though it has doubled in size since the 70s, it hasn't changed much, Tara. Townsfolk don't lock their doors, crime is almost non-existent and everybody knows everybody's business. You just got three hits on the Forensic Files bingo card. Was it also a great area to raise children and did someone's smile light up a room? Well, it certainly wasn't yours. That's for fucking sure. It was home to hard-working farmer types and hard-drinking sheep shearers. In 1978, one of those hard-drinking sheep shearers was 25-year-old Michael Mick Lewis. Mick was married to 27-year-old Sue. They had two children, Tanya, age four, and Mark, age two. Mark was known to his family and friends as Little Mick. I love that a two-year-old already has himself a sweet nickname. What nicknames did you have, Barney, apart from, well, that cunt? Oh, well, Barnstorm, Barnyard, Banowski, Barnacle, um, Barnacles. You made Barnacles up. No one's ever called you that. I know yours, Tara. Vanilla Slice, Murphy Brown, Suddenly Susan. Those are sucky nicknames you gave me, and for some reason, they never stuck. Yes, they did. No, they didn't. Big Mick, Little Mick's dad, grew up a country boy and hailed from the small town of Carathool before moving to Derildery. His brother Vince Lewis told Crime Investigation Australia of their early days growing up on a farm. It was a good life. We were tough. We done a lot of riding horses and stuff. Me and my brother Mick we used to milk cows and supply most of the town. It was a pretty tough life. That's just the way we were. That's the way we were made. Mick's wife Sue was also country folk, growing up in the nearby rural town of Daniloquin. Mick's brother Vince went on to recall, What I remember of the kids, the boy was a dead spit of Mick. The way he walked, the way he talked and everything. The girl Tanya was a dead spit of her mother. Both were well liked and respected. Betty O'Dale, a local barmaid, described Sue Lewis as a lovely person and a great mother. The couple rented a small homestead called Summerfield Station about 10 miles out of Gerildery. Mick got a sweet deal on the rent, subletting from a lady who lived a mile down the road. All they paid was $15 a week on the proviso that Mick helped out around the farm. The house wasn't a palace, but it was clean and tidy, perfect for a young family starting out. Ooh, bingo. Bingo, that's another Forensic yeah. Files bingo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Mick was a bit famous around the district. Known as a gun shearer, Mick had been honing his craft since his teens. Mick could shear 200 sheep a day, which was quite impressive. No one could beat him. A few tried, but Mick was kick-ass when it came to relieving sheep of their woolly burdens. Mick had his picture in many local papers and had won a swag of ribbons in shearing competitions. He was a hard worker, but he also played hard too. After shearing a couple of hundred sheep, Mick would down six long necks of beer, eat a huge bowl of spaghetti, and then down another six long necks of beer for dessert. I call that Tuesday. Yeah, and Wednesday and Thursday. Afterwards, he'd dash to the local pub for more beery delights. This was pretty much his daily routine. Gerildery had three pubs and Mick frequented all of them, but his first love was the Royal Mail Hotel, where his ass wore down quite a groove on his favourite bar stool. Mick had a lot of friends there. He'd tell them tall tales of his shearing and drinking exploits that would usually end in something bawdy and possibly a tad crass. 
much like myself. Mick drank like a thirsty fish, occasionally getting in fistfights. He gambled, mostly unsuccessfully, on pool, poker machines, horse racing or just two flies crawling up a wall, resulting in Mick always being short of cash. Mick would stay till closing time at the pub most nights, only leaving early if he'd run out of dollars and no one would shout him a schooner. Sue, who can only be described as his long-suffering wife, constantly got the shits with Mick's rambunctious behaviour. Sue went to the pub on more than one occasion, grabbed Mick by the ear and dragged him out, much to the amusement of his drinking buddies. Oh, you're fucked, Mick. (laughs) Guess I know who wears the pants in your family. It's not you, Mick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mick was a bit of a bad boy in other ways too, Tara. He was convicted of sheep shearing. No, he wasn't. Oh, no, they (laughs) liked it when he did that. Yeah, he was paid for that. He was convicted of sheep stealing and had a couple of other petty theft infringements, as well as a drink driving charge. But it was all considered boys will be boys kind of stuff, and the gun sure was still a bit of a star around town. Yeah, it was a different time. It was a shittier time. No way someone would get away with that crap today. Rightly so. One night, Mick arrived home pissed as a fart. His dinner was burnt and shriveled on a plate in the oven. Sue was not impressed and told him as much, using some quite colourful language. Mick, instead of taking the tongue lashing that he deserved, answered back with a few choice words of his own and then stupidly pointed a hunting rifle at Sue. His terrified wife grabbed the kids and scampered from the house and spent a miserable cold night sleeping in the car. The next morning, sober Mick was contrite and he begged Sue to come back to him. She only agreed after Mick promised to get rid of the rifle. On Friday, September 29th, 1978, Sue was hanging out with her parents in Daniloquin. Mick arrived after work to pick up his wife and the children and to drive them back to Derildery. Sue waved as they drove off and told her mum and dad that she would see them again on Monday night. It's the last time anyone saw the couple alive. As it was a holiday long weekend, Mick's workmates were a bit concerned when he failed to show up for work on the Tuesday morning. Sheep are not very good at cutting their own hair. True that. Now, sheep shearers are mates for life and are very loyal, Tara. They are in constant contact with each other. They pool their resources, share petrol and other expenses, braid one another's hair and console each other if one is in strife or because the sheep are wet and they can't go to work. Yep. Wet sheep ruin everything. His shearing bodies tried to call Mick, but there was no answer. Eventually the boss called the Summerfield homestead himself, but he also got no answer. Not taking no answer for an answer, the big boss man took it further and contacted the local telephone exchange. In 1978, there were no automatic telephone exchanges, and because of the vast distances between homes... A number of isolated properties shared the same phone line. Yeah, they called them party lines. Woohoo! Hey, baby! Calls to Mick Lewis went through to a switchboard at the Daniloquin Exchange and then through several properties. Concerned for his safety, Mick's boss insisted that the exchange supervisor kept intermittently ringing the phone at the Summerfield homestead. Eventually, the call was answered by the quivering, tiny voice of four-year-old Tanya Lewis. The operator said to her, Hello there, is your mummy at home? Tanya answered, She is, but she's asleep. When they asked her if her daddy was there, she said, Yeah, but he's asleep too. He's sleeping on the kitchen floor. 
The operator then asked little Tanya if she could go and wake her mummy for them and tell her to come to the phone. Tanya's response was bone-chilling. She replied, no, no, I don't like mummy anymore because mummy's turning black. Well, that's super creepy. Yeah, well, the operator thought so too and got the sergeant in charge at Gerildery Police Station on the other line. Sergeant Paul Payne and Constable Ken Waterhouse were the first on the scene. As they opened the front door of the Summerfield homestead, they were greeted by the sight of a very dead Mick Lewis lying on his back on the kitchen floor. It didn't look like he'd been dead for very long. In the living room, they found two-year-old Mark and four-year-old Tanya looking dirty, hungry and very distressed. They were cuddling up to each other when Sergeant Paul Payne asked them, where's mummy? Tanya said, in there, and pointed toward the master bedroom. The cloying smell of death hit them hard when they entered the room. The severely decomposed Sue Lewis was lying in bed, her body black and almost unrecognisable. Noticing the marked difference in the state of the bodies, the officers surmised a domestic murder-suicide, assuming that Mick had killed his wife and a few days later had taken his own life. But one thing didn't fit with this theory. There was no weapon next to Mick Lewis. Did Mick shoot his wife, hide the gun and then take some fast-acting poison? Yeah, nah. No, he didn't. On closer examination, the officers noticed blood under Mick's head. No blood was found in the bedroom where Sue lay. Her decomposition was such that no preliminary cause of death could be established. Homicide detectives were sent down from Sydney to examine the scene. They too wondered about the domestic violence theory. The house was in a mess, particularly the kitchen, but detectives thought this may have been due to the children foraging for food. There were soiled nappies on the floor and the unsupervised kids had used the whole house as their toilet. The fridge door was open and contained very little food. Broken biscuits littered the floor. A can of dog food had been partially opened. Did Michael Lewis look after his children for a few days after killing his wife just to kill himself and leave his kids to starve to death? It wasn't like little Tanya and Mark could have just walked to the neighbours as the homestead was quite isolated and at least a mile to the next house where their landlady lived. There was evidence that the children slept with their dead mother in her bed. Probably just to keep warm as the temperature at that time of year can drop to zero degrees at night. Detectives initially had trouble convincing the children to leave the house with them. I mean, they were strangers to them. Oh, yeah. You know, you wouldn't be like, fine, I'm just going to go off with these guys. Yeah. Two-year-old Mark cried for his mother. Eventually, they were lured out with a puppy. Puppies solve everything. They do. The grandparents were contacted and they took them into their care. Police asked them to keep the children close by as they may know something that could aid the investigation. The next day, after the kids had been checked by a doctor and were fed and well rested, they were interviewed by police, but being so young they were not able to help in any real way. Detectives were hoping they could assist them in reconstructing a timeline, but children this young don't even know what day it is, let alone how to even tell the time. As a forensic team moved in, they discovered Mick had some food in his mouth. It appeared to be bread. One of his pockets was turned inside out and his watch band had broken open with the watch moved up his arm. Mick was lying on the kitchen floor. Directly above him was the oven. Its door was open and inside rested two plates. On one was an omelette and bacon and on the other was only bacon. 
Mick was possibly cooking breakfast, making two meals, and he was up to cooking the other omelette. This clue would prove to be a real chin-scratcher for detectives, but more on that later. Also in the kitchen was an upturned fry pan on the floor, and a clock that had stopped with its power cord having been ripped from its socket. The stopped electric clock was another chin-scratcher. It was one of those 1970s clocks with the flipping numbers. It didn't show an AM or PM and was stopped at 11.47. Detectives were disappointed as it could have nailed the exact time of death. Remember, it was 1978 and time of death was a tricky thing to establish in those days. Yeah, it kind of still is. Well, one method used to establish time of death is body temperature. Well, that's right. It was discovered in the 1830s. Uh, A doctor experimenting with the corpses of dead soldiers in Malta discovered that body temperature dropped at regular intervals following death and could be used to determine TOD. Yeah, but it's only in the first 24 hours that the technique is useful. That's right. Didn't we establish that the temperature dropped to zero degrees at night? Exactly. The only other scientific method to fix the time of death is to measure the age of newborn insect larvae on the body. Ah, the maggot measuring. That's the one. But that would take days, as this evidence needed to be sent to the CSIRO for analysis. Ah, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. That's the one. While detectives scratch their chins, heads and, well, possibly balls about the marked difference in the state of Mick and Sue's bodies, one smarty-pants forensic officer made a startling discovery. He, too, had been wondering why Sue's body was in such an advanced state of decomposition. It wasn't summer, and the last time Sue had been seen alive was when she was leaving her parents' home on the Friday, with the bodies discovered on the following Tuesday. He then realised that the bed that Sue was lying in was not only warm, it was actually steaming hot. Turned to its highest setting, he found an electric blanket still cranking out the heat. This explained the difference in the decomposition between the two bodies. Whilst waiting for the entomologist at the CSIRO in Sydney to do his thing with the maggots, detectives began a more thorough examination of the crime scene. They photographed the bodies and every room from multiple angles. A fingerprint officer began dusting every surface. He got excited when he thought he found bloodied finger marks on their fridge, but on closer inspection, it turned out to be the fingerprints of a child made in beetroot juice. Ah, classic rookie forensic mistake. Yeah, I've done it. After all the fingerprints were collected, most were eliminated within a few days. There were a few that weren't, but police suspected they belonged to Sue Lewis, as her body was too decomposed to get any proper fingerprints to compare them to, and she'd never been fingerprinted in any criminal matter. When the bodies were ready to be removed from the house, a fine clue dropped into investigators' hands. When the blankets were thrown back on Sue, a small metal object flew out and rolled along the floor, a 22 caliber cartridge recently fired. The bodies were taken to the nearby town of Finlay where Sue and Mick's parents were asked to formally identify them. Sue obviously could not be identified by her appearance, so her rings were taken from her hands and used. Mick Lewis was viewed by his father. His brother Vince Lewis told Crime Investigation Australia, I went in that day with Dad and Mum to identify Mick's body. They wanted me to go and do it and I said no, I can't. Anyway, Dad went in and done it. When he came out, it took 10, 15 years off Dad's life, I reckon. I can never forget when he came out, he was crying. I had to grab hold of him. To hold him up, it was not a very good day. Post-mortem x-rays revealed that both Sue and Mick had been shot in the head. 
Sue Lewis had been shot twice. Her x-ray showed two entry wounds and 23 actual images of metal, as one of the bullets had fragmented. Michael Lewis had been shot once. The bullet entering under his right ear, going through the brain, where it lodged at the back of his head on the left side. With no weapon and both Mick and Sue dying of gunshot wounds, all theories of a domestic killing vanished. This was a double murder. We'll be back with the conclusion of Mummy's Turning Black, Murder at Summerfield Station, after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, Flavor Barney, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, um, horrible virus that just goes all over the world, and and, um, (laughs) song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch, or chin, or balls. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Rebecca, and she tells us about the TV series The Dictator's Playbook. And she writes, Hi, Barney and Tara. Hi, Rebecca. I just discovered Bloody Murder a few weeks ago and have been quarantine binging ever since. Oh, God help her. As a Yank, I was initially taken aback by the liberal use of the word cunt. But now (laughs) I'm used to it and laugh nearly every time. Nearly every time. I love your mix of old-timey and modern murders and hate it when you talk about crocodiles because I hate crocodiles. Ah, well, she's not going to like that the whole second half of this case is all about a gigantic crocodile that knows how to shoot rifles. (laughs) And I know what I'm getting you for your birthday, Rebecca. Yeah, a crocodile. Twelve. Twelve crocodiles. I'd like to recommend the PBS series The Dictator's Playbook. The Dictator's Crocodile. There are six episodes and they cover the key strategies and tactics used by various dictators, including Mussolini, Idi Amin, Manuel Noriega, Francisco Franco, Saddam Hussein and Kim Il-sung. The program includes insights from content experts and human rights groups and shows how violence and fear underpin every dictatorship. Due to my past work in broadcasting, I was interested in seeing how information is controlled and censored in repressive regimes. I liked especially that they included dictators other than Hitler, who's a fame whore and seems to be in about everything. Yeah, he really is. He would go to the opening of an envelope. He would. Like at any point in time, like probably right now, if you turn on your TV, there will be a show about Hitler on. Like Adolf, go home, man. No one's interested in your shit. Give someone else a chance. Adolf is like the Ted Bundy of murderers. He's just everywhere all the time. He's not really? anyone ever talks about. Hmm. The Ted Bundy of murderers. You know Ted uh, Bundy's a murderer too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the Ted Bundy of Nazi leaders? Yeah. The, the Ted Bundy of uh, dodgy historical figures? How's that? 
My husband doesn't understand my fascination with true crime and depressing history, but for some reason, I love it. The Dictator's Playbook was a great watch. Thanks for making me laugh out loud on the daily and keep kicking against the pricks. Well, that's good advice. <laughs> Cheers from America, Rebecca. Nice one, Rebecca. Hmm. Don't you normally sum it up now and say, so that show was the this, that? That documentary is The Dictator's Playbook, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to contribute to True Crime Nerd Time, uh, email us at uh, bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. Yep, um, anything about crocodiles would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, crocodiles. We're doing a lot on crocodiles lately. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole rest of the year is just going to be focused on crocodile crime. I wonder if she's okay with alligators. Well, I feel like that would have to be a no, really, because aren't crocodiles just alligators with an Australian accent who call everyone cunts and put an O on the end of everyone's name? Tomo! What about those Galapagos Island lizards that swim? I love what are they, what are them. they called again? Oh, God, I should know this. Galapagos Island lizards? Iguanas. Iguanas. That's Is right. It? Yeah, I love those. I love oh, one of the best nature documentaries I've ever seen was about the Galapagos Islands. They got some really kooky shit there. Well, that's that thing about that book and movie, Night of the Iguana. Not enough iguanas? Not enough iguanas. Was it at least nighttime? It was nighttime. Okay, well, it's half right. It's half right. The Troubles in Northern Ireland was an extremely volatile 30-year period in which thousands of people were killed on both sides of the conflict. The Troubles podcast is an introduction to the major events that occurred during the Troubles. It is a non-partisan, true crime-style podcast that explains the motivations and planning behind the attacks, as well as the consequences. The first few episodes are out now and cover a range of different events, including when Lord Louis Mountbatten was blown up at sea by the IRA, as well as the Shankill Butchers, who are the most prolific serial killers in the United Kingdom. You can find the podcast at shows.acast.com slash the Troubles podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So we're halfway through 2020. Yeah, financial year's over. Woohoo! Wonder what's going to happen next. Nope, don't even go there. Is everything going on in life and the way this year is panning out interfering with your ability to be happy? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Is it crocodiles? <laughs> Are you lonely in isolation or a bit traumatised by the state of the world? Or perhaps all of this is just making the other stuff you already have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. And you can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Yes, all without having to leave the house and sit in germy waiting rooms. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You could be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as anger, trauma, anxiety, stress and depression. Crocodiles. And crocodiles. <laughs> Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. Are you scared of crocodiles and you want to... <laughs> if you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. 
As a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counsellor that suits you. If you don't believe us, check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of Mummy's Turning Black, Murder at Summerfield Station. Detectives began going through the Lewis's phone books, letters and paperwork found in the homestead, trying to compile a list of known associates of the couple. On the back page of a Yellow Pages telephone book, they found a handwritten list of 20 numbers. That's a clue. Yeah, you think it's a clue? Maybe. It could be a red herring. From the nearby Puckapunyal Army Base, soldiers were called in and used metal detectors to search around the homestead for the murder weapon without success. My dad was at the Puckapunyal Army Base. Yeah? Did he get arrested for something? No, no, he was a soldier. No, I know. I was being a dick. Was he a crocodile wrangler? <laughs> he was a, no, well, he was a soldier, but he rode a crocodile to work. My father was a crocodile. Yeah, well, I don't doubt it. Plaster casts were taken of some deep tyre tracks left in the soft dirt at the front of the house, but they failed to match any known cars. Ballistics started working on fixing the angle of the shot that killed Mick. Investigators followed the trajectory to the back door where they noticed a small hole in the screen. It matched the size of a twenty-two bullet. The wire was pushed inwards, which meant that the shot was fired from outside. With a string attached to a tripod from where Mick Lewis had been standing, the cord was taken through the hole in the screen door to the backyard. Here the string hit an old wooden stand holding up a water tank. Detectives suspected this was where the killer stood, resting his rifle against the tank to steady his shot. The ballistics officer encircled that spot with a rope and declared that a spent bullet casing would lie within the circle. Sure enough, after about 20 minutes of scratching around in the dirt and grass, they found a shell. Here it is. The cartridge was compared with the shell found in Sue's bed and it was quickly established that they came from the same weapon. Based on the evidence, investigators theorised how the murders took place. At 11.47 on Friday night or Saturday morning, Mick Lewis stood alone in the kitchen cooking bacon and eggs. Sue and the children were asleep in bed. The killer leant against the water tank took aim and shot Mick. Mick was cooking the last omelette when he was shot and as the bullet entered his skull, he flipped over the whole frying pan, which was attached to a double adapter. The clock was wrenched out of its plug and Mick, the fry pan and the clock hit the floor. A murderer then walked into the kitchen where he saw Mick dying. He searched his pockets and stole $200. Mick had been paid on that Friday and there was no sign of the cash anywhere else in the house. The killer then moved through the house to the main bedroom where he found Sue asleep. He shot her in the head. One detective suspected the first shot hit some nerve and Sue sat up in bed. This must have scared the shit out of the killer and she was shot again. The next move for the team investigating the murders at Summerfield Homestead was to find the brand of rifle used by the killer. Bullet fragments taken from the bodies were identified by their distinctive marks known as lands and grooves. In this case, investigators determined that the bullets that killed Mick and Sue Lewis had eight lands and grooves with a left twist. This established that the weapon was an Australian-made Fieldman rifle, of which only 2,000 were ever produced. 
Now, whilst every farm in Australia would have a 22 rifle, a fieldman was rare. Detectives considered this a very strong lead. Meanwhile, the township of Derildery was awash with panic and fear. Who could have murdered such a well-liked couple and leave their two young children to starve? There was also quite a bit of gossip and innuendo and tongues wagging. People were wondering, could this have anything to do with mixed petty crime and drunken behaviour? Detectives had to chase down every lead and all turned out to be red herrings. Four days after the bodies were discovered, police finally got the entomologist's report from the CSIRO on the examination of the insect larvae. Ah, the maggot measure. That's it. It revealed that Friday night was the time of death. Which brings us back to why Mick was cooking two meals at 11.47pm at night when his family was in bed asleep. Brinner. Breakfast at dinner time. Double Brinner. Next, the police appeared on local radio and television, requesting public assistance in solving this heinous crime. Dozens of calls came in, but all it did was produce more dead ends and red, fishy leads. In the next week, hundreds of people were interviewed and dozens of twenty-two rifles were examined, but not a single Fieldman rifle was among them. Police still believed that this was their best lead and in an effort to speed up the investigation, detectives again graced the airwaves and told the public they were looking for a twenty-two rifle connected to the murders. They didn't tell them what sort and hoped that if a farmer was involved, his missus might turn up with the Fieldman just to clear her husband. The search widened as residents of all towns in the district were urged to bring in their guns for inspection. A command centre was established at the old Gerildery courthouse. Each person arriving had their gun inspected and were questioned about anyone else they knew who might own a rifle. Detectives then heard some gossip about Mick deliberately wrecking his car to collect the insurance. They discovered that Sue had told her folks they were expecting a $5,000 payout and detectives now suspected that robbery could have been the motive for the murders. Upon further investigation, police learned Mick had pushed his car off a bridge just out of Gerildery into a dry creek bed. Sue's parents told police that Mick's insurance agent was a man by the name of John Fairley. His name had been one of those written on the back of the Yellow Pages directory at the homestead. Fairley had already been interviewed by police. He'd given them an alibi for the Saturday night. But detectives now knew the time of death to be on the Friday night. 40-year-old John Fairley, on first impression, looked pretty unassuming. But it was all a ruse, Tara. The bald man with chunky sideburns was a beady-eyed, skeevy con man who was softly spoken until he felt he was being badly treated. Then he would snarl and his true temperament would be revealed. I'm pretty sure I've dated him. Painting houses was his game, but he also had a side hustle of selling car insurance. Living in the rural centre of Shepparton with his wife and five children, he had few friends and was not well liked around town. Detectives scooped him up and hauled him into the Shepparton police station for another chat. Fairley did not care for police and was not very helpful. He made out that he knew Mick Lewis, but the rest that came out of his mouth was a bunch of lies. He told police he worked for an insurance company in Sydney called Lumley's. He didn't. <gasps> police checked with them and they told detectives that Fairley hadn't worked there for a year. The insurance firm he was a sub-agent for confirmed his employment but said there were no policies there issued to Mick Lewis. He was asked if he knew about Mick wrecking his car and asked again if he sold him any insurance. 
Fairley told them that Mick and himself were just drinking buddies and he had never sold him any insurance. Now, drinking buddies seemed unlikely as Geraldry was a hundred miles from Shepparton where Fairley lived. Yeah, that'd be a lot of drink driving, wouldn't it? No, it was 1978. Oh, God, yeah. Was it even a crime then? (laughs) They probably gave you money for it. Yeah, you could probably win awards for it. With all the crap spewing out of John Fairley's mouth, detectives decided to find out more about Mick's crash car, a 1976 GT Ford Falcon. Isn't that the one that Cambo has? I thought he had a Hyundai. Oh, you're in so much trouble. They managed to find a local smash repairs. The proprietor confirmed that he had towed in Mick's wrecked car. Oh, had a bit of a prank, have you? Yeah, accidentally rolled it off a bridge. Can you fix it? Yeah, nah, cunt's fucked. (laughs) <laughs> the smash repairman went on to tell the cops an insurance assessor had been called in to inspect it. He described him as a bald man with beady eyes. He told him that the car was a write-off and that he should sell it for scrap and to send the cheque to Mick Lewis. The bald, beady-eyed assessor had even left his business card. The name on the card was John Fairley. When Fairley was presented with this evidence, his beady eyes got even beadier and through a snarled gob, he told the cops he'd never been there and it must be a mistake. Yeah, right. This is when detectives started checking on Baldy Blob's known associates. Baldy Blobs? Yeah, that's what I call Fairley now. Oh, okay. His testicles are also bald. Really? It's possible. They found a bloke by the name of Ray Rafferty who had also been seen drinking with John Baldy Blobs Fairley and Mick Lewis at the Royal Mail Hotel in Derildery. And guess what? His testicles were also bald? No. Well, possibly. Uh-uh. No, he had a licence for a fieldman rifle. Uh-huh. Ray Rafferty was interviewed by detectives at his duck farm near Shepparton. Quack! Quack indeed. Rafferty admitted to owning the Philbin rifle but said he couldn't show them the gun because... One of his ducks ate it. No. He'd lent it to his mate, John Fairley. (gasps) Oh, baldy blobs. That's right. He also gave police some spent cartridges from the rifle. These turned out to be a perfect match to the ones found at the murder scene. Aha. Eight lands and grooves with a left twist. Fuck yeah. John Fairley was slapping paint on the side of her house when police came to arrest him. You mean Baldy Blobs was slapping paint on her house? That is what I meant. Baldy Blobs was hauled into Shepparton Police Station. Here, he of course denied everything. But as the evidence was presented to him again, Fairley eventually cracked like an egg in a clothes dryer. That's not a saying. Yes, it is. He cracked like a bum in a bucket. That's not a saying. Yes, it is. Stop it. Unable to lie through his stupid mouth any longer, he broke down and confessed. This is what he told the startled detectives, who were flabbergasted by his trivial motive. He had, on not one but two occasions, sold Mick Lewis car insurance and pocketed the premiums and not passed it on to the insurance company. After the first payment, Mick had a genuine accident and rang Fairley to arrange a claim and to have the damage repaired. Fairley stumbled and blurted something out about him missing a cut-off date and also the paperwork being lost. Maybe his friend's duck ate it. Quack! Of course, there was no insurance on the vehicle at all and there never had been. Fairley suggested to Mick that he sue the other driver, which Mick did. He won at court and was meant to be getting $100 a month for a certain period of time in compensation. The trouble was he only received one payment. 
He then paid Fairley $295 for more insurance. Of course, Greedy Guts Fairley kept the premiums for himself yet again. This is when Mark rolled his GT Falcon off the bridge. Yeah, now nah, cunt's fucked. It certainly was. Mick thought he had insured his sweet ride for about five grand and demanded the money, ringing Fairley every day to hassle him. Fairley knew he was about to be exposed. He stalled Mick and then tried unsuccessfully to borrow the money. Finally, John Fairley started to panic. He was cornered and could only see one way out. Murder. He told the police he drove the hundred or so miles from his home in Shepparton to Geraldry, where he spotted Mick Lewis's car outside the Royal Mail Hotel. In the car were Sue and the children waiting to pick up Mick. When Mick Lewis got in the car with Sue, he followed them to the Summerfield homestead. He parked down the road so his car wouldn't be seen. Fairley set himself up at the tank stand and fired through the screen door, killing Mick instantly, one shot to the back of the head. He then walked through the house, past the children, and then shot Sue Lewis twice. He told the cops, I had to kill her because I was frightened she might dob me in. It doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, he's outside in the dark. He could have just run off to his car and left. Like, even if she did hear the shot, she probably wouldn't have seen it. No, you see, the thing is, Tara Sue knew about the, the insurance. The insurance, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Asked if he had seen the children, Fairley said, No, I didn't see them. They must have been asleep. I just left them. Heartless cunt. Detectives couldn't believe how calm he was when he told the story of the killings. Later in a packed derailleur court, John Baldy Blobs Fairley pled guilty to two counts of murder. Even though John Fairley's time in court was brief, it was here that he finally showed his true character. Like the proverbial cornered rat, Fairley exposed teeth and verbally abused the prosecutor, his defence, the judge, people in the gallery, the entire court system, the sandwiches they had for lunch and all of the police involved. He denied everything, even though he was pleading guilty. In the end, he was physically dragged off to prison. He was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment, but for reasons that we we couldn't find an explanation for, he was released after serving just nine years. That's a bit fucked. In fact, that's a lot fucked. Nine years for two murders? I know, that's just completely outrageous. And we couldn't find out what happened to him after his release, but, you know, kind of hoping the remainder of his life was full of misery and despair, just a little bit maybe? One can only hope. What we're left with is two orphaned children traumatised by the senseless killing of their parents. What we are also left with is a lingering mystery of why Mick Lewis was cooking two meals at nearly midnight when his wife and the children had already eaten and were asleep. Double Brenner munchies? Mystery solved? I'm still very frustrated about him spending only nine years in prison. Oh, I'm never getting over it. Like, seriously. Maybe he grasped on some other bad guys to get his sentence reduced or something, but they must have been pretty bloody bad for that to work. Yeah. Look, that's the only explanation that makes sense, actually. I know. But someone who's going to kill two people for five grand, I mean, it's kind of a pretty low bar on what their future actions might be. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, what a story. 
I have but one question. Yes. What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Well, today I'm going to be talking about a truck driver named T. He's a bloody legend from Queensland who not only thwarted an attempted robbery, but also gave the offender some fatherly life advice. Now, I don't recommend anyone actually try this. According to Nine Now, CCTV footage from inside a pharmacy shows two men ramming open the glass doors of a chemist in Logan City with a supermarket trolley. Once they crack it open, the young men enter the store, steal some shit and try to scamper off. What did they steal? Jelly beans, deodorant and some frangers? Look, I wasn't able to find that out, but I'm assuming they bypassed the jelly beans and the frangers and went straight to the drugs. Cough syrup. And the other drugs. Oh, the better ones. Mm, Painkillers. Hillbilly heroin. T was dropping off some magazines to a supermarket when he noticed a woman waving him down. Now, at first he thought she was just being friendly, and so he waved back. Oh, g'day! Hey! How you going, love? Then he realised there was something else afoot and went over to speak to her. She told him that two men were in the middle of robbing the pharmacy next door, and that's when T sprung into action. He told the Today Show... Oh, I walked over, stood in front of the door, and then I looked down and I saw them. And I was like, mate, what are you up to? Mate. I took a step back and that's when the first fella just ran straight past me. I was like, bro, you got away. The second fella looked at me and I thought, you are not going anywhere, fella. I just tackled that fella down. He was struggling at first and I said to him, mate, you are wasting your breath. You're just going to make yourself tired. After a little while, he he sort of just gave up. While T pinned the young man to the ground for 10 minutes, waiting for the police to arrive, he decided to take the opportunity to offer him some sage advice. T explained, I was like, mate, I have a 15-year-old son. Why are you hanging out with these dropkicks? They are not good for you. Like, you got your whole life ahead of you, bud. That's when the thief offered T $200 if he'd just let him go. T pointed to his truck parked nearby and told the guy, I have got a job. I don't need your money. T continued. He was like, let me go. I don't want to go to jail. But I said, sorry, bro, but this is what happens when you are a naughty boy. Deal with the consequences. Yarra Bilba Station Sergeant Nathan Booth was impressed by T's quick thinking. He said... This was a courageous effort from the member of the public combined with a quick response from the local responding officers resulting in the arrest of all four alleged offenders. A 20-year-old caboolture man was charged with two counts of enter-premises and offence by break and enter and was slated to appear at the Beanley Magistrates Court recently. Three of his accomplices were questioned but not charged. As for our hero T... He doesn't get what all the fuss is about and figures anyone would have acted the same in that situation. I know for sure I wouldn't have. Fuck no, I don't want to get stabbed. I don't want to get stabbed either. (laughs) So uh, this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. So thank you to Barkley Dweller from Australia. That's probably one of your neighbours. It could be um, from Sparkly Bear. That's right. Aliquot from Canada. Emdo Troc from the USA. And Loy Hecker-McCarthy. Uh, Lorraine. 
And Lynn's 0053. Thank you so much, everyone. We'd also like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team. You know who else is awesome, Tara? Who? Our patrons. Ah, that's for damn sure. We love them. Yeah, we we love, do. We love them so much, we've been holding monthly giveaways. Our June prize, the Hey Baby prize pack, was won by Vicky Frederick. Congratulations, Con- Vicky. Congrats, Vic. For our July prize, we're giving away a three-pack of Bloody Murder socks. Put them on your walking hands. For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program, so thank you to Adam Pott, Scott Quinn, Paul Kopak, Tara Smith, Ruby Rush, Alison Legg, Mary Linda Taskus, Rachel Flanagan, uh, Gabe's Carlin, who I had a great chat with at our last meeting. Ah, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, Ryan Simpson, Nancy Lackey, Heather Schmidt, and Jerry Hannafin. Wow, I think we were able to say all of those names. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, that's my thirsty voice, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And you know who's buying the drinks this week? Who? Melissa Spears. Thank you so much, Mel. Thank you. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Sarah. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a hey baby would still count. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us grow our audience and seem impressive to strangers. (laughs) That's what I live for. Does it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Impressive to strangers. Yay. Well, do you think our friends go and look at our reviews and our our star ratings? Hell no. Well, if they did, they'd laugh. (laughs) Should go look look for our bad reviews. They're pretty fun. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. Yeah, those socks are pretty sweet. I ordered some. Oh, sweet as. Can't wait to see them in person. Mm. They look good in pictures. Although I noticed that you put them on like a a, a hairy man leg and someone's already messaged me to ask me if that's my leg. (laughs) I, I saw that. Yeah. Well, you're it's right. not actually my leg. It's okay if it is, Tara. You're allowed yes. you don't have to shave your legs during the plague. I know, but it's not my leg. They didn't in 1646. I want all the strangers to be impressed by my legs. <laughs> <laughs> they look more like my legs, David Niven legs. They definitely look more like they would be your legs. <laughs> so thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye, and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey, Tara, you know what I want to be when I grow up? Uh, I'm not sure that you're ever going to grow up. I think we've kind of reached that point where it's like, "Mm, it's probably not going to happen. I could still grow up. Okay, all right. So supposing that it's possible that you will actually grow up at some point, what would you like to be? Well, I want to be a Tara and I want to do my own Aussie ad. Oh, you want to be me when you grow up? Oh, Uh, rethink your life choices, son. Look. I've got one here. Okay. I just want to road test it. Okay, cool. Barney Az. And and it's from the Sydney Morning Herald, March 3rd, 1979. I found this one when I was researching this case. It's a ye olde Aussie Az. It is. And the newspaper article is entitled, Burp Cost Man a $50 Fine. Ooh, $50 would have been heaps back then. A 23-year-old labourer, Monty Whitten, who burped into the face of a police constable was fined $50 at Blackdown Court of Petty Sessions. Whitten of Petty Lethbridge... Petty Sessions, that's a good name for a podcast. <laughs> Monty pleaded guilty to the charge of offensive behaviour and told Mr WB Power SM, that's the magistrate... Oh, I thought it meant that he was into S&M. 
Oh, it was accidental. I couldn't help burping. I just had a can of Coke. (laughs) The police prosecutor, Sergeant Jay Davies, told the court Monty had been spoken to by Constable Anderson of Mount Druid outside the shops at Luxford Road, Lethbridge Park on Thursday. The police had received complaints about young people causing trouble. Yeah, burping and shit. Near the shops. Monty had uttered very loud burps of wind into the face of the constable, Sergeant Davies said. Oh, yeah, I wonder if the cops used to talk like that back then or if they only do it now for press conferences and things so they don't say um. I actually think that's why they talk in that strange way is to avoid them from ever saying um. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why I think they do it, um, because you notice that they never say um. And I think if they do it in such a measured, stilted kind of way, it oh, is possible. possible to not say um at all. I haven't finished. I didn't think you had. Uh, do I care? No. The magistrate told Monty Witten, it's time you shook it. See, I've lost my train now. Oh, did I fuck you up by interrupting you? Oh, I'm not a professional Tari yet. You know what it is, too. You know what Taras do? They write their own Aussie ads. They don't just read it from a newspaper. Oh, well, I'm That's a what's beginner. fucking you up. Hey, you're the one who, you know, I'm just thinking about that text you sent me like four days ago. You called me a frog bottom. I'm not a fucking frog bottom. <laughs> I thought you'd like it. because You called me a frog bottom via yeah. text. I said, I'm not trying to pick on you, frog bottom. <laughs> which, which, which is what you were doing by calling my bottom frog-like. Exactly. I thought you might like that. Anyway, the magistrate told Monty Whitten, it is time you grew up. It really wasn't worth it, was it, that ending? How do, am I a Tara? Can I be a Tara when I Yeah, up? you can be this Tara. I'm, I'm going to get a whole new identity. Really? I'm going to take it over. You've got to recreate all of my Facebook profile shots, though. That's the one, the one thing you have to do. I'll bring some outfits next time I'm here. All right. Yep. You got any stories? God, all I do is I walk the dog and I come here to podcast and I work from home and I do research and I do writing and, and then that's pretty much it. I don't fucking do anything. Um, What about you? I told you my burp story. <laughs> God, what more can I do? <laughs> um, I'm not sure what else uh, you do. What else you got, Frog Bottoms? That's what you were thinking, weren't you? <laughs> that's what you were thinking. I was kind of thinking that. Kind of. Well, no one could ever accuse you. You never have to say, does my bum look big in this, do you? Do these jorts make my bottom look big? You don't I, have to say that because you don't have a big you bottom. You see, listeners, I don't have much of an ass, and Tara com- constantly points it out to me. But you know what? As as a podcast, we have we have enough for two asses because <laughs> what he's lacking in ass, I make up for in ass. <laughs> so he doesn't have quite a bum, and I have just a bit more than one. <laughs> Oh, well, I murder. guess it evens itself out, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah. You know, swings around But you know what? Abouts. If I'm sitting on a chair and it's a little bit uncomfortable, I can't say, can you give me half your ass? <laughs> or if you're too comfortable on chair, can you say, you can't say, uh, yeah, can yeah, I have I a bit like of your to. no ass? Here you go. Would you like a handful of ass, Barney? There you go. <laughs> you, give me, you give me fucking more than handfuls of ass <laughs> every goddamn day of my life. <laughs> and you deserve it. But no, you can't share my ass. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's weird, dude. Stop bringing it up. Ass, crocodiles, quack. Yeah, I was good. That was good. That story had a duck in it. Yeah, maybe more than one duck. I'm not sure. 
Oh yeah, you wouldn't have just had one duck. No, he wouldn't. No uh, one just has one duck. You don't. You wouldn't call it a duck farm if you it's had one just duck. A one, well, maybe it's just a really unsuccessful duck farm. <laughs> maybe it's like you know how some people just if they try to garden the plants die. Maybe that's what he was like as a duck farmer. Yeah, I mean, overwatered the ducks. I live on a farm and I have one duck. You wouldn't call it a duck farm. You would if you were being sarcastic. <laughs> the sarcastically named duck right. farm. It's unlikely. It's unlikely. Yeah. No, no one would call it a duck farm. Mm, no, They're pretty wouldn't. serious about naming farms in this country, particularly back then. Oh, yeah, it's very important. It's serious business. It's very serious business. So more crocodile stories, huh? Yeah, yeah, we've got to pump out the crocodile stories. All right, for I'll see what I can do. I actually read about a case in Florida. I couldn't find follow-up information, but it was about someone killed a pedophile and fed him to crocodiles. Right, and the crocodiles were riding motorbikes? Jet skis, baby. Oh, of course. Come on, it's it's I mean, that's the aquatic motorbike, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. The motorbike of the river or the or the um, oh, swamp. Swamp. That's the, the bayou. Bayou. Yeah. That's what they call it, don't they? Well, I don't know because <clears throat> I've never got it right. That's what Linda Ronstadt tells me. Well, Linda Ronstadt says it right. However, I said it during an episode years ago was not right. Bayou. I might have said bayou. How was that? Yeah, that was good. Born with a cow's breast in each hand. <laughs> no, born with a cow's teat in each hand. Titty? I like the word titty. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. I was born with a cow's titty in each hand. Yay! Fuck yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, we don't have dummies in Australia. You just sort of uh, just get a bit of a cow titty going. Have, have you seen my Tumblr? Fuckyeahcowstitties.com. Ah, I have actually. Um, and I go there instead of Pornhub these days. Well, I don't know why. Fuck oh, actually, yeah. no, I do know why. Fuck yeah, long nipples. They really are about. long, aren't they? You ever milked a cow? Um, no, I haven't actually. I mean, you've but pil- a cow's milked me. <laughs> I was going to say you've killed one, but uh... yeah, yeah, not for its milk, just for fun, just, just for, for sport. Because I'm, I'm a sadistic, evil person who loves animal cruelty. And by the way, if you want to kill a cow, uh, a small child's sand bucket. Yep, and spade. Just and leave, spade. leave them out on out the front of the house and then a cow will come past and maybe it committed suicide. I mean, uh, think about it. Mm. Bright pink plastic. I'll I mean, never... what cow's going to think that's food? I'll never be your hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going out on my own terms. That's right. I like that. Sue was hanging out with her parents in Deliloquin. Deliloquin. Sue was hanging out with her parents in Deliloquin. Fucking words. <laughs> point of fucking words like fuck them all tell them all to fuck off can i just do this in sign language his shearing buddies tried to call mick but there was no answer i'm serious what ah because shearing sounds like hey siri i'll have to turn my phone off Then he would snarl and his true temperament would be revealed. I'm pretty sure I've dated him. <laughs> More than once. More than once. Oh, so. yeah. That's, that's just, that's Tara bait right there. <laughs> that's Tara bait there, right yeah, there. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, people say, what's your type, Tara? And, well, I'm just going to read yeah, that out. complete losers. <laughs> yeah. Snarly, nasty, uh, skeevy. crocodile Yeah, these are all the things I put on my vision board. <laughs> it's been working out very well, thank you very much. 
Detectives scooped him up and hauled him into Shepparton Police Station, the Shep Cop Shop, for another chat. No, I get... <laughs> you <laughs> fucked yourself. I did in the ass. Mm-hmm. It wasn't comfortable. And I didn't think you were flexible like having, enough to do it, but like, here we are. Like having sex in a Volkswagen. A Volkswagen. Uh, Isn't that large? No, they're not very big. Oh, VW, right? I was thinking yeah. of like um, a, a station, combi van, a station wagon. It was a word wagon. Wagon right. got me thinking of a station wagon, not a little Bundy thing. Because <laughs> that's what they are, yeah. Bundy cars. Bundy cars. Yeah, Bundy and Hitler. Like roasting in hell, both high-fiving each other about how much press they get. My stepdad had a car that the doors would just randomly just swing open on. That was a fun thing to be around. You'd actually kind of be in it just holding the door shut. Do you remember that old station wagon that Dave had? It was so shit that every time he turned left, the horn went off. Hey, do you mean Dave's gold car? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was a station wagon. I remember every time we pulled up at a set of lights, he'd go, all right, if the car if the car stalls and I can't start it, I'm just going to run and I recommend you do the same. <laughs> Seriously, that was what we were supposed to do, just run from it if it stalled. I love that the horn went off every time he turned left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dave's gold car, that was amazing. He had it a long time. Yeah, yeah. He did have it a long time. Too long, some would say. Oh, look, he's got that sweet one now, the one, that big, like, truck thing that's like a submarine. It's got its own snorkel. It does. He made out that he knew Mick Lewis, but the rest that came out of his month, his munch, the rest that came out of his munch, that's what I call a mouth. A <laughs> yeah, munch. you know what, it works. It really, you know, shut your dirty munch. <laughs> Now I'm figuring that it's like actually a euphemism for a downstairs area and I'm also picturing the detective from uh, Law and Order SVU. So there you go. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. Now I need some munch panties. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Bloody murder <laughs> merch. Now stocking detective munch panties. The insurance firm that he did work for and was a sub-agent. Oh, just fucking read it. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Are you trying to fuck up his awesome pleather chair? Don't fuck up my new my faux leather chair. Yeah, not cool, Lassie. You know what would look good on the cat? A pair of jorts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a top hat. Yeah, I bet you hate top hats. Yeah, that's true. What if it, what if it, the top hat was made out of of denim? Would you like it better? Oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, someone's soiling their munch panties oh, thinking about it. Oh, denim top hats. <laughs> someone will probably Stop try, it. Someone will probably try to send you one. Oh, well, if listeners, if you'd like to send me a denim top hat. Please email your denim top hats to Bloody Murder Podcast. <laughs> At gmail.com. <laughs> Is that, can you email a top hat? If it's I a s- made of denim, you can. Yeah, None of this is a problem. I know how computers work. There you go. Yeah, problem that... solved. Yeah. I'm going to Google denim top hat now. <laughs> I bet there is one. I'm surprised that um that Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake weren't wearing them when they wore their denim outfits. Oh, yeah. Let me have a look. Yep, denim top hat. Found myself a jortsy top hat. They're even sort of like patchworky. They're actually creepier than real top hats. I think you would hate them. Well, I'm coming over for a look. Oh, yeah. Oh. There's kind of like a cool black chick wearing them, though. I like her, but I don't like it. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm yeah? into that. You want a denim top hat? Yeah. Oh, look at that one. It just looks like it's made of like the ripped up butt yeah, bits. That looks like it's going to choose what house I go to. Yeah, it is going to choose what house. You're going to house jorts, mofo. 
Oh, look, you can get a denim hat with a beekeeper visor to protect you from life. Mm. Oh, look at him. You could be him. You could have a long beard with your top hat and some round sunglasses. Oh, I know what summer bun is. What is going on there? It's just like gigantic pants pulled up to his neck. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.